while they're making their way out, let me encourage you to take out your copy of God's Word, or maybe turn on your device. We're in Luke chapter 2. We're in the Christmas story, the story of the birth of Jesus, a story that we are certainly very familiar with, a story that we know well. And so uh, it's one of those stories to where in our culture, we have talked about it over and over and over. We discuss uh, the birth of Jesus. We know about the angels and the star and the wise man and Mary and Joseph and a decree from Caesar and, and all of the parts. And In fact, probably one of the best ways that we keep up with the story of Christmas in our mind and in our culture is the nativity. I'll show you a picture of a nativity just so we all are on the same page. We we know about these. We you may have a nativity set in your house. You may collect nativities from around the world. You may have nativity painted on towels and on. We've seen live nativities where they are allowed to uh, have real people and animals standing as folks drive by. Even when we're little. Before we're adults and fully understand the Christmas, we're put into nativity plays. Children are often gathered up into nativity plays, like at a school or at a time of that. You all know about children being in nativities. You probably were in a nativity as a child. Uh, maybe something like this picture of a, a bunch of kids gathered around. An, oh, in that, oh, right? You, you've been in those moments. I, I'll tell you a funny story. This one's free of charge. My brother, when he was small, not me, I might add, not me, not me, not me. My brother, when he was small, my mom tells a story that he was supposed to be a shepherd in the nativity at Shady Grove Baptist Church in Randolph, Alabama. And they began to gather them up and herd him down. And he was supposed to sit on a hay bale right there in the front of the church in the middle of the thing. And all he had to do was sit still. Well, you can see how the story's going to fall apart at this point, right? All he had to do was sit still. And while he sat there for a little while, mind you, my parents, my family, my grandparents, nobody in our family are smokers, by the way. That'll help this story. While he's sitting there on the hay bale, he decides to pull out a piece of straw, put it right in his mouth, and strike that imaginary match. Not only did he sit in that nativity scene and smoke that imaginary cigarette out of that piece of straw, he tried to hand it to the other shepherd sitting beside him. (laughs) We all know, that's a true story, by the way. We all know about nativities. We all know about the story of Christmas. We, we've heard it over and over and over and over. And again, this morning, I'm going to read to you Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. It is the Christmas story. And so my hope this morning, brothers and sisters, as we, as we go down this rutted road again, as we travel down this path that's well-worn, that we have studied over and over and over, here's my hope, here's been my prayer this week. Oh, God. Give us fresh eyes. Let's see it again. Stir our hearts again. Show us again how amazing it is that the God of all creation would be born in a barn for you and me. Oh God, give us fresh eyes. Would you you let me pray that prayer and we'll read the scripture. Father, we're about to read your word. It is holy, it is true, it is pure. Every word in it is right, it is accurate, every detail in it is because you wanted the details in there. And so, Lord, I pray this morning, as we read this story again, this story that we've seen over and over and over, this story we've helped uh, enact in plays, we've stood and watched as live nativities are gathered. Lord, we've, we've heard the story of the Magi and the shepherds and the star and Bethlehem and Mary and Joseph and Gabriel. We've We know this story, Lord. Culturally, we we have our mind wrapped around this. God, I pray this morning that you would remind us that we're about to read your living word. 
It is not just a piece of history that we are about to read. We are about to read the very words of heaven that are active and living and sharper than any two-edged sword. And so, God, I pray this morning you would give us fresh eyes. You would stir our heart that we would see it again. We would see this, this beautiful hope, this hope we have that Jesus has come. Lord, we confess in many ways this has been a challenging and difficult year. God, help us as we read this story again that you are the God who enters into our challenging and broken lives and changes everything. Give us fresh eyes, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read together that Christmas story. Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read through verse 20. Here are the words of Luke, the historian who writes this first Christmas for us. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration of Quirinius, the governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is Bethlehem, because he was from the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for I behold, I bring you good news of great joy for that will be to all people. Verse 11, for unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those in whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it there, they made known the saying that they had been told concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all things, pondering them in their heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it has been told to them. What a familiar story for us. The Christmas story. We've acted it out, we've played it, we've drawn it, we've colored it, we've taught it, we know the Christmas story. But this morning I want you to see with me in this Christmas story how Christmas is where hope is born. That hope is given to us through Christmas. In Christmas, God brings hope to earth. In fact, I believe there are three characters, three people in the text where we will see that hope is born. The first one is simply this. I believe hope is born for the ordinary. In the Christmas story, I believe hope is born for the ordinary. In the coming of Jesus, the ordinary man, the common woman, finds hope. In fact, if you were to draw your eyes to the first seven or eight verses, you'll notice with me some polar opposite characters. The first character that we're introduced to in verse one is, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. Now I want you to look at that name for just a moment because that's not his real name. 
In history, his real name was Octavian. He was the great nephew of Julius Caesar, the famed Shakespeare play, Julius Caesar, that Caesar. This is the great nephew of Julius Caesar. And he claws his way into power by beating Antony and Cleopatra. Those of you that remember 12th grade English will catch some of this story in the Shakespeare world. But it's the real truth. It's history. His name was Octavian, but he became Caesar because Julius Caesar, his great uh, uncle, had an eye for him, began to groom him. And after he was killed and overthrown, then finally Octavian comes to power and claws back the kingdom from those who had taken it from his great uncle. He becomes the Caesar. Now here's what's interesting. His title, Augustus, means divine. It means God. In fact, the Roman Senate saw Octavian as such a leader that they believed he was divine. They believed he was God in the flesh. He was the very first Caesar to be called Augustus. He was voted on in the parliament as a god, and they gave him the title Augustus. So he becomes known as Caesar Augustus. So when you read verse 1, here's how you should read it. Caesar, the god of Rome. Caesar, the God in flesh that leads all the Roman kingdom, that owns every provenance of the world. I want you to notice something else about it. Notice what happens. Caesar makes a decree. When Caesar makes a decree, everybody moves. Everybody goes about their way. Yesterday, we were gathered with my wife's family. And there was a, a good bit of cousins and, and people together. And we were eating. And it came time to take the family picture. Can I just tell you guys, nobody's prepared for the family picture at Christmas. I mean, you need to pray about the family picture before it's time for the family picture. First, they want to take the grandkids with grandmom and granddaddy. You're talking about herding cats. You pull one down, one gets away. One begins to cry. One touches another one. They don't know what camera to look at because every mama's got a camera out. Apparently, we don't understand the digital world where one camera can be shared among everybody, right? But there is this unorganization. Then you try to add the adults to the picture and it gets even worse because adults won't listen any better than children. And so this goes on and on. And do you know what the family picture is stopping? Dinner. <laughs> but then granddaddy yelled. Granddaddy's as deaf as a doornail. So when he yells, he, he's not that deaf. He yelled and everybody got quiet. Why? Because a decree was made by the patriarch. When Caesar makes a decree, notice what verse 1 says, the whole world was shook. When Caesar makes a command, the whole world is upside down. When Caesar says it should be done, everyone in the known world under the providence of Rome, the kingdom of Rome, must move. He is by sure the most powerful person in all of the known world in chapter 1. Well, at least up until this point. He is Caesar, and he moves. But then notice the other characters we meet in the text. Not only is Caesar in the text, but all the way over on the other end of the spectrum, there are two Jewish teenage newlyweds that we meet, Mary and Joseph. Mary and Joseph would not be famous. No one will listen to their decrees. They can't get anybody to pay taxes for them. They're very well unknown, if you will. And the Bible says that they are so poor and with such poverty that while they travel to Bethlehem, they can't find a room. Now, you know rich people could find a room. 
Rich people could afford to bribe someone or pay someone or lodge in some fancy palace. But the common hotel at the time was just a a house or a gathering place with barns and stalls. And they find themselves having to be outcast in a barn. Can you think of more polar opposite characters in the Christmas story? Caesar Augustus, the God among men, who can say a word and the whole world has to start traveling to pay taxes, and Mary and Joseph, who nine months pregnant have to travel 90 miles in order to pay the taxes because this guy over in Rome decided it was time for taxes to be paid. Think about it. Caesar, sitting on his throne in Rome on the other side of the Mediterranean Sea, says, I decree everybody should be registered because I need some more soldiers and some more taxes. And when he makes that decree, 90 miles, Joseph and Mary, nine months pregnant, poor teenage Jewish newlyweds, will travel to Bethlehem because a guy in a palace on the other side of the world said, let's get them to pay taxes. Brothers and sisters, There is not a more polar opposite story started in all of history. We have the most powerful known man, and we have two teenagers that are simply the most unknown people at the time in the world. Look at the text with me. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration by Quirinius, the governor of Syria. He would be the underling under Caesar in that area. And when all went out to be registered, each to his own town, and Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn, and wrapped her son in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn." Now, I want you to just draw in with me for just a moment about this, this story. I, I find it kind of funny. I, I've had the privilege at being the birth of both uh, or all three of my children. I have three, not two. I've had the privilege of being at the birth of all three of my children. Can, can you just draw your eyes with me for just a second to the Scripture? Look at verse 6. And while they were there, the time came to give birth. Okay, nine months has arrived. The day is the day. You might ask yourself, well, why did Mary go on this jersey? Well, this special child was going to be born. Joseph was not going to miss it. They were together in this battle of heaven, giving them this gift. But notice verse 7. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. Can we just agree that was written by a man? And she gave birth, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger. That ain't how birth goes. That's not how it works. I've been to three of them. It ain't that simple. It's not that easy. It's not that pretty. Let us be reminded for just a moment how weird this story is. Mary, who has never been with a man by the Holy Spirit, is given God in his womb. And then, while she's carrying God, a decree comes out from Caesar. And so at nine months, she must travel 90 miles with her teenage husband to sleep in a barn, not a five-star hotel, not a birthing suite with all the amenities. There's no bassinet nearby for the baby. She travels, and then the Bible just records, and she gave birth. Now, if we're not careful, we can romanticize this and miss the point. Let me read to you how it probably went. Listen to one author write about this birth. He says these words. If we imagine that Jesus was born in a freshly swept county fair stable, we miss the whole point. It was wretched and scandalous. There was sweat and pain and blood and cries as Mary reached to the heavens for help. 
The earth was cold and hard. The smell of birth mixed with the stench of manure and the acrid straw made a contemptible bouquet. Trembling, the carpenter's hands clumsy with fear. Grasp God's son. Slippery with blood, the baby's limbs waving, helpless as if falling through space. His face grimacing as he grasped in the cold, and his cry pierced the night. Brothers and sisters, we have two poor, pitiful teenagers that have to give birth in a barn. It's not pretty. It's not some sort of beautiful birthing suite where there's a photographer on standby. It was scandalous. It was dirty. It was broken. It was a terrible experience, I'm sure, for Mary and Joseph in those moments of figuring out what to do and where help will come from. It was not as we would romanticize it in our nativity. This was God bursting forth in our world. But I want to show you something now. I want to show you why I made such a point to give you two poor teenagers and a powerful Caesar. Because I, I want to show you what's really happening. I want to show you what's really going on. Here, here's what's really going on. We, we might think Caesar caused all this, but Caesar didn't cause all this. Years and years and years, hundreds of years, 400 years before this day to be exact, 400 years before Caesar said, hey, I'm ready to take up taxes, the prophet Micah comes on the scene and speaks for God. In fact, in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, we read these words from Scripture. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler of Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from the ancient days. Do you get it, brothers and sisters? Caesar thought he was the most powerful man on the world. He is just unwittingly a pawn in the hands of God. God is moving the chess pieces of history and time and place and people. God is not just over Israel. He's over all the world. And in that very moment when Caesar says, you know what? I think I want to take up a tax. God says, you know what? I think I'm going to tell Caesar to take up a tax. So Mary will end up in Bethlehem. So Micah won't be a liar. So God's promise will be fulfilled. You see, here's what I understand. Caesar might think he's the most powerful person in this story, but oh, he's far from the most powerful person in this story. In fact, who do we celebrate at Christmas? Do we gather around and celebrate Caesar Augustus? Absolutely not. We celebrate Jesus Christ the Lord who was born in that barn, who was laid in that straw. We celebrate the Savior who God delivered through his uh, promises of Michael. We have in this decree that we are never alone. That God has come for the ordinary, for breaking through. Then we think about the baby, not just the decree, but we think about the baby in the story. Think about it this way. Caesar had the power to speak and people had to move and pay taxes. That's pretty powerful. It's pretty powerful when someone can decree and taxes are made. You know what's more powerful? When every knee and every tongue and every nation shall bow before the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what's more powerful? That Caesar, for a time period, was in charge of Rome. But from the past, present, and the future, Jesus is in charge of all the kingdom of God. What's more powerful is the baby that Mary is carrying. You see, here's what I understand. Julia, excuse me, Caesar Augustus might be powerful, but it's the baby in the womb that causes the angels to sing. It's the baby in the womb that causes the shepherds to move and Joseph and Mary to end up in Bethlehem. Why? Because God is fulfilling his promise. You see, here's what I understand from the story. Mary and Joseph may be ordinary, but that's exactly who God came for. That's exactly who God came to rescue, the ordinary. 
those who are unknown and off the charts. And, and can we just think about this for a moment? Sometimes in our life, let me give you just some application. Sometimes in our life, when we think about the Lord and the cosmic world around us, we might be tempted to think God's not really involved in the details of our life. He doesn't really care about every little thing going on in our life because he's got bigger things to do. He's got wars in Middle East and cancer hospitals where he's working through prayers and he's got economies to help. And there are a lot more important things. But just think about the Christmas story for a moment. All of heaven, all of biblical history is concentrated on two Jewish teenagers in a barn in a town that nobody knew about. Can I say this to you? I believe God is involved with the ordinary and the insignificant and the nobodies that are all over the world. I think God is involved in the parts of your life where you say, I, I'm not sure he cares or he's not there. I believe he does. If he can be in a barn with two teenagers, he certainly can be in the middle of whatever you're going through. All of God was focused that morning on two ordinary people. God came for the ordinary. God came to rescue us from our sins because we needed him. But he came for the ordinary. He's not too big in his sovereignty that we not be in his humility come for you. Isn't that good to know? You're not insignificant to God. You're not a speck on his radar. You're a, none, a nobody that he walks past. You're who he came to save. You. You're the one he came to rescue. The ordinary, the common, the unknown. I want to show you a second set of characters in the story because not only do we find in the story hope for the unknown, we find hope for the outcast. Not only do we have find hope for the ordinary, we find hope for the outcast. You see, in verse 8, the scene will change. We know the story pretty well. There's shepherds watching over their flocks by night. The Bible says that they're out there. Now, why would this be? Well, shepherds would work this way. They would take their sheep out to graze. It's a desert, so they have to keep them moving, looking for prairie land to eat on. And oftentimes, multiple shepherds would put their flocks together at night, and so they could take turns who had to be awake. And so one shepherd might stay awake and watch the sheep in some sort of corral in the fields, but the rest of the shepherds might be asleep. And the Bible says there in verse 8 through 20 that here's what happened. That the shepherds were asleep, the night was calm, there was nothing going on. Maybe the bleeding of a sheep noise every once in a while, or the crickets singing, or a coyote howling in the night, but not much is happening. And then notice with me what happens in the story. Notice what takes place, one of the most terrific scenes in all the Bible. In verse 9, And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. Now, I just got to tell you something for just a moment. We don't, the angel did not come walking down the road. They didn't have time to say, well, well, I wonder who that is carrying that flashlight traveling up the trail tonight. I wonder who that is coming. To, hey guys, wake up. Someone's coming. No, the Bible says that all of a sudden the angel of the Lord appeared and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And then notice what it says next. The angel's first words, fear not. Well, that seems like an understatement, doesn't it? I mean, that's a two-tunic kind of night right there. When angels appear, y'all understand that joke, right? Like you, They probably had to go change before they could finish the conversation, right? Husbands, your wife will explain it to you on the way home. The idea is, is that, that all of a sudden, they're sitting there, and heaven invades the moment. And the angel appears. And the glory of God, the manifestation, the light of heaven pierces into the dark. And here's the beautiful thing, brothers and sisters. When the glory of heaven pierced into the dark in the midst of these shepherds, the first words out of heaven's mouth, don't be afraid. 
Don't be afraid. Isn't it good to know that we have a God who enters into our life and he says to us, you don't have to be afraid of me. You don't have to fear me in that way. You don't have to be scared of me. Now, here's what's scandalous about the story. See, I believe that the shepherds were the first told because it sets for us the theme of the fact that the Lord came for the outcast. You see, shepherds in that day were filthy, literally and metaphorically. Because of their job, because of the way they handled the animals, because of the hours that they had to work, they were never ceremonial clean, which means they could never go to worship in the temple. So they were unchurched, if you will. They were outcast in the religious Jewish structure. They were also known as ruffians. In fact, Jewish history would tell us that the shepherds had such a reputation that they were literally not allowed to testify in court. If you were a shepherd, no judge would call you for an eyewitness account because you were in the group of people that were considered liars and bums, right? And so they were the farthest out you could get in society. But God saw them. God saw them and showed up that night. The angel of the Lord appeared. The heavens lit up that morning. God saw that they needed a Savior. God saw that they needed rescue. God saw that they were not outside of His vision, and He showed up. He showed up on that hillside and he said, don't be afraid for I bring you good news of great joy for all the world. Now, I like the reason why they put the all the world in there, because you could imagine after a few moments when the angels started to speak, Luke probably doesn't record this and I'm giving it a little bit of spiritual imagination. But you've got to figure at some point, one of them shepherds raised their hand and said, excuse me, Mr. Angel, you missed the temple by 20 miles. I think you're looking for the high priest. You made a wrong turn. Surely you're not bringing us this glorious message from heaven to us shepherds. Surely you're not expecting us to be the PR company of heaven. Surely you're not thinking we're the ones that should receive this message. But the angel of the Lord said, I brought you good news for all people. You see, brothers and sisters, the Lord chose shepherds to remind us that even the outcasts are good for him. Even the outcasts are worthy of his son coming to save us. Even the outcasts are worthy of being rescued and redeemed and brought. Even the outcasts are worthy to be rescued. And so what does the Lord tell us in this text? He says, I came to Mary and Joseph the ordinary, and I came to the shepherds who were the outcasts. I came for the broken. I came for those that no one looks at and thinks are valuable. I came for those who are outcasts in their sin, who are separated from me. I came for those that everyone else would walk past. I came. In fact, when Jesus grows up, he will later go into the temple and he will read the scripture of the day. In the Jewish world, the temple had a reading every day and they would work their way through the Old Testament scrolls. So Jesus one day enters into the temple and that daily reading was Isaiah 6, excuse me, 61 verse 1. So Jesus gets up to read it. He's the reader for the day. This is what he reads. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and opening the prison so that those who are bound may go free. Jesus read that and then he rolled up the scroll. And you know what he said after that? He said, today this verse has been proven in front of your eyes. Today I'm here to fulfill this verse. He was saying that the prophet Isaiah was talking about him. Now let's just meditate on that for a moment. When Jesus was born, the angels went to the shepherds to say, Today he's come. The one who will set the captives free. The one who will grab those that are victims who are grabbed by sin, entangled in darkness. The ones who need to be liberated. The ones with broken hearts who need to be binded up. This Savior has come. And who better to hear it than some dirty outcast shepherds on a hillside? 
Who better to hear it than those who find themselves thinking that they're not in the plan of God. They're outside the plan of God. They're not worthy of the plan of God. The Christmas story tells me that hope is born and hope is born for the ordinary man and woman, but it's born for the outcast as well. It's born for the one that society has walked past, the one who feels that their sin has disqualified them so far that God would not hear them or come to them, the one who thinks they've messed up so much that God would not rescue them or care about them or love them. When God showed up to the angel, to the shepherds, to the angel, he is declaring to us, no one is out of my reach. No one is past my grace. No one this son will not die for. No one he will not rescue. He tells us in the text, he is for all people. Look at verse 11. He says, for unto us this day, this day, right now, will be this one born in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you that you will find him wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. I like that right there. And the sign was not a star that we read later about the wise man visiting. The sign was not some sort of angel perched on top of the barn singing. There were not light posts lit in a certain way. The sign was a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes. Now, I don't know if you've ever been around the nursery of a hospital, but all the babies are wrapped in swaddling clothes. If you have a friend give birth and they, you go see them at the hospital and there are babies in the nursery ward all lined up in their little plastic tubicles on the rolling carts and they're wrapped in pink for girl and blue for boy, you might have to walk up to the window and, and nudge your buddy and say, hey, which one's yours? Which one's with you? Which one? I, I was the father. This is another true story, a confession. I apologize for this many, many times. But after the birth of Cade, my oldest son, my wife was home for the safe period of staying home. It was my first day to go back to church. My wife says to me, grab the picture of your dad and Cade on the table. Take it to church. Show everybody. I took it to church. I showed everybody. Here's my dad's arms holding Cade. It's cute. It's pretty. Everybody's, oh, let me see. Let me see. I get back home. Do you know what I took? I took the picture of my nephew being held by my granddaddy. I couldn't tell the difference. They all looked like babies to me. I didn't know. Somebody had to nudge me. I needed a sign. Which one is my kid? Notice the sign in the text. The sign will be, it'll be the one in the barn laying in the feed trough. Can you think of a crazier sign? That's like saying, hey, our baby was born. We're up at the hospital. We're the one in the janitor's closet. You pick out the baby wrapped in swaddling and clothes, the one over in the wash tub. That's our baby. The sign, the sign to the shepherds was, it'll be the one laying in the feed trough. Why do we suppose that is? Well, brothers and sisters, if Jesus was born to Caesar in the plush palace, wouldn't be no shepherd allowed to step foot in there. Wouldn't be no ordinary Jewish teenagers allowed to come around. Wouldn't be no wise man traveling from far just bust in unannounced. There's no way you would have access to Jesus if he was laden in the golden bassinet in the prince's office or the high priestess place or the Pharisees. But because Jesus was in the stable barn, the communal barn of the committee of uh, Bethlehem, because Jesus was out there in the open for all to come and see, because he was wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger, even dirty, ruffian, outcast, unknown shepherds could show up and see the savior that's the story there's hope for the outcast there's hope for those look how the story ends i want to show you one more truth in just a moment look what happens to the shepherds the shepherds say these words the angel says to the shepherd verse 12 and this will be a sign for you that you will find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger and suddenly there will be with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising god and saying glory to god in the highest and on earth peace among those whom he's well pleased and when the angel went away from heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem. The angel never commanded them, but they never had a choice, did they? 
we got to go see this. We want to go see what God is doing. Look again. Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the sayings that they had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard were wondered, and all the shepherds had told them. But Mary treasured all things and pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen and told. Now think about some of the details of this story, these outcasts, these unknowns coming to see Jesus. Think about some of the details that stand out in the story. First, they come, and the Bible records by Luke, they told everything they had heard. Can you imagine how tired it was to be around these shepherds probably 5, 10, 15, 20 years after this? They told this story over and over and over and over. I'm reminded of the old hymn that says, we've a story to tell to the nations. They had a story to tell. They told it over and over and over and over. Hey, I was one of those guys on the field that night when the angels appeared and the glory of the Lord and the chorus sang. And then we went to this barn and there was this baby. But you know what's always interesting to me? Look at verse 20. The Bible says in verse 20 that they left singing and worshiping. Now, that's always been interesting to me because you would think that if they got this big announcement that the Savior was born and they found what was only could be considered a very pitiful picture of two teenage Jews in a barn with a baby in a feed trough, you would think they would leave underwhelmed. You would think they would leave disappointed. You would think they would leave. Boy, that was really a letdown. I mean, that barn stunk. Did you see that goat over in the corner? Did you see that camel that had slobbered? Man, did you smell that manure? That place stunk. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says they left rejoicing and singing. Why? Because, brothers and sisters, listen to me now. Whenever and wherever you come to Jesus, you'll never be underwhelmed. Whenever and wherever you meet him in the gutter at the broken part of your life, you won't be underwhelmed. You meet him in the sanctuary for worship, you won't be underwhelmed. You meet him in the trough in the barn, you won't be underwhelmed. Why? Because the angel and the Bible had said, this is the Savior. And the shepherds went and said, everything God said was true is true. And they stared at the face of God in the flesh. And the only thing left to do is leave with a song in your mouth. The only thing left to do is worship the Lord. When you come to Jesus, when the outcasts and the ordinary come to Jesus, no one is underwhelmed by Jesus. No one is underwhelmed. He doesn't need golden palaces. He doesn't need all of the, the trappings of the world to make himself present to us as something holy and wonderful. He is God in the flesh. And they left singing. Notice what Mary did. Mary pondered in her heart. There are two responses to the Lord Jesus that a Christian should have. One, we should be singing. We should be telling and singing the good news of Jesus. But number two, we should be like Mary. We should meditate. We should ponder. We should think over and pray of what the Lord is doing in our life and in our world and in the gospel around us. This is the story. I believe in the story of Christmas, we find hope for the ordinary, for the unknown, we find hope for the outcast. But I want to show you one more and we'll be finished. And here it is. I think we find hope for anybody. I think in the story of Christmas, we find hope for anybody. Look with me, if you will, at two verses. Verse number one, in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now, you see that term, all the world. It really wasn't all the world. It was, that's a hyperbole. That's an exaggeration. It was all the known world. All of Roman's uh, empire, 
It was most of the Mediterranean and Israel and Rome and, and some of the places moving up into North Europe. It, it was everything Rome touched. It was all the known world to the people that were recording history at time, but it was not all the known world. You see, Caesar's power was not everywhere. It was just everywhere to the people that knew about it, to the historians that recorded it. But I want you to look at verse 14 now. I want you to look at the difference in verse 14 and verse 1. In verse 14, the angel saying these words, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, peace to the earth, peace to everyone. In fact, they would say in verse 10, I bring you good news of great joy for all people. God's talking about everywhere, even though Caesar's not. But notice verse 14. And on earth, peace among those in whom he is well pleased. The Bible records this. The later manuscripts pick this up, this idea of peace for those who he is well pleased. And the question would be simply this, how is hope found in Jesus for you and me? How is it found for the ordinary and the outcast? Well, I believe it's found for anyone who will fear and worship and honor the baby in the manger. I believe it's found for anyone who will come to Jesus. I believe it's found for anyone who will come to this child that Mary has given birth to. I believe that God has brought peace on earth to anyone who will come to him. But I want you to notice something with me. Don't lose me. Stay with me. I didn't say everyone. The text doesn't say everyone. It says peace on earth to those whom he is well pleased. You see, brothers and sisters, listen to me now. Don't miss this. Not everyone came to Jesus. Not everyone will come to Jesus. Not everyone will receive the peace. Everyone is the crowd. It's everybody in the crowd. Anyone is one person out of the crowd. It can be anybody, but anybody can be anybody rescued by the Lord. Boy, that was a good sentence, wasn't it? Anybody can be rescued by the Lord, but not everybody will be. Not everybody will be rescued by the Lord Jesus. Not everybody will walk in the streets of gold. Not everybody will enter into the eternal kingdom with God. Not everyone will come and worship at the manger. Not everyone will be a shepherd or a Jewish teenager or wise man traveling alone. Not everyone will come to Jesus. Not everyone will find the way, but anyone can. Anyone can. How? Because notice what the text tells us. We have two responses that make it very clear what we're called to do. One, we are called to go to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, if you want peace in your life, peace on earth, you want to be, have peace with God, you must go to Jesus. Just like the shepherds, just like Mary and Joseph obeyed to bring Jesus into the world, you must go to Jesus. And if he tells you to travel, you must travel. If he tells you to give up, you must give up. If he tells you to sacrifice, you must sacrifice. You must go to Jesus. And then secondly, you must worship him. You must worship him. This is God in the flesh, the very Savior of the world. I believe in the Christmas story. We find hope for the ordinary. We find hope for the outcast. And we find hope for anybody that will come to Jesus. Anybody that will fear Him and praise Him. Anybody that will lift His name high. When you think about the birth of Jesus and you think about God sending His Son, and you think about all the events that took place and you think about all of the, the story of the nativity and you think about that God of all creation became man for us, I think that the best way to sum it up is a, a line from a song that Fanny Crosby wrote. This is what she would write in her response to Jesus. To God be the glory, great things He has done. So loved He the world that He sent us His Son. Would you pray with me? Father, this morning we thank You for the Christmas story. We thank You for the opportunity to 
gather around your word and hear again what you have done. We pray for fresh eyes and a fresh heart to see it again. Lord, show us again that you are for the the ordinary and the outcast, that you're for anybody who will fear you and walk with you and who will come to Jesus. God, remind us. Remind us that while we may think Caesar is in charge, we may think life is in chaos, we may think that the, the pieces are moving and you don't care, Lord, remind us that nothing moves without your hand. That nothing is decreed without your will or your ways. Lord, remind us that we are not too small for you. For if you can do the work of saving the world, if you can do the work of saving uh, all mankind through the baby in a barn, God, remind us that you can do the work in our life. Lord God, as we read this text, here's what we see. We see that heaven was turned upside down at the birth of Jesus. The angels sent forth to sing. We see that the lowest common denominator was changed. Jewish teenagers, outcast shepherds. Lord, we see all this hoopla and all this chaos and all this turning over of the world because you sent your son. Your son is worth it. Jesus is worth us turning our lives upside down. Jesus is worth our praise and our meditation. Jesus is worth us obeying and following. Jesus is worth it. Brothers and sisters, your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed. I would ask you this Christmas week, have you come to Jesus? Can you say like the shepherds, you have dropped your job and income and priorities and ran to see Jesus? Are you obeying Jesus? Can you say like Mary and Joseph that you are doing as the Lord has instructed you to do? Are you telling and worshiping Jesus? Are you meditating and praying? Has the baby in the manger that grew to be the Savior that died on the cross and rose from the grave... Has He really changed your life? Are you marked differently? See, I brought to you several characters in this story. But I believe that Mary and Joseph and the shepherds were never the same. I believe Caesar Augustus died a man, not a God. Oh, brothers or sisters... Will you come to Jesus? If you're here this morning and you say, I know the Lord Jesus, then I would just simply say, well, you have the heart of the shepherds. We have a story to tell to the nations. We have good news, peace on earth to those who He's well pleased, those who will seek Him and find Him, those who will be rescued by Him. Will you come to Jesus? Father, I pray now as we respond to You during this Christmas season, give us fresh eyes. Help us to see it again. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us this morning? You want to come and pray, you come.